welcome to the Scotta Chronicast, the podcast which discusses all things relating to medieval Scotland. I'm your host, Dr. Kate Buchanan. This is episode 37 and is part two of my conversation with Dr. Ian McInnes. In this episode, we're going to be continuing our conversation on the Second Wars of Independence, but looking into some of the women that were involved. If you haven't listened to part one, episode 36, this would be an excellent time to go back and listen to that one first. Without further ado, on to the episode. mind if we dig into Catherine a little bit no, deeper no. and st- start with um like why she was up in Scotland to begin with um yeah so i mean she 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 marries Strathbogie in the later 1320s um and he of course goes mm-hmm. north with the disinherited in the first invasions in 1332 and then is it, it would appear to be driven out with the rest of the disinherited in that in, at the, uh, the end of that year the 30 he goes back he's amongst the disinherited english forces besieging berwick and and the the victory they, they gain at halidon hill and it's it's the the victory at halidon hill coupled with the victory the previous year at dublin moor rather decimates the, the Bruce nobility. There's a lot of Bruce nobles captured or killed. Um, and I think in the mm-hmm. aftermath of that, that's when the disinherited are at their kind of peak. Um, they are able to to physically take the territories that they claim. Um, Strathbogie is able to gain mm-hmm. uh, the steward's lands in the southwest. Um, but I think... I think that's that's more of a kind of monetary or political transaction. His interest is in the north. Mm-hmm. He's claiming his lands through uh, himself, but also through his mother uh, to the common inheritance. And so he's looking at, at Athol, at Badenoch, um, at Loch Arbor, uh, and then potentially into various parts of Murray as well. His father-in-law, Catherine's uh, father, uh, Henry Beaumont claims the mm-hmm. other Murray. Strathbogie may well have, have uh, claims to, to, to other territories like Mar. So, you know, he's he has a lot of interest in the North. And I think, I think, after the summer yeah. of 1333, he's able to make that lordship in that region a reality. And I think it's at that time that, that mm-hmm. Catherine uh, and her mother, because um, her, her father is obviously in Scotland as well, and thus perhaps her, her extended right. siblings all come north uh, in, 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 in oh. kind of mid to late 1333. Because um, I think that's the, that's the okay. logical time for it to happen. Uh, and then they're there yeah. for, for, the, for, for the next while after that um henry beaumont mm-hmm. and his wife and his family are besieged in dundard castle towards the end of 1334 um and are forced to surrender and are forced to leave um but catherine i think is is there through all of this and strathbogie is captured by the bruce scots but surrenders and is able to negotiate a good position for himself within the bruce hierarchy because he i think ali ross uh-huh. suggests Switch well, yeah, he does side. switch sides, and I think Alistair Ross suggests that the Bruce Scots realise he's an important and potentially powerful figure. So, so I think I think Catherine right. is there through all of that, and is there as her husband changes sides uh, and then continues to to wield power, but for the Bruce's instead of for the Balliols. And I think it's probably in that period that she gets pregnant and and gives birth in probably thirteen thirty four. Um, but you then have that mm-hmm. nice twist 
which only one Scottish source kind of picks up on uh, that that when she's uh, besieged within lock and door, she's besieged there with her with her young son as well. Uh, so she's acting as right. as noble woman, but also as mother, and there's all manner of interesting things there. I think. Yeah. So she she's when she's under siege. Is that's before Strathbogie has switched. Sorry, sides, no, that that or? that's later. So so yeah, Strathbogie's on the Bruce side from thirteen thirty September thirteen thirty four to June or July thirteen thirty five, uh, when the English come north again and, and force his surrender back to them again. Um, but English right. English chronicle accounts uh, reproduce the. It's hard to describe what it is. It, it's you would you might say it's the terms of his surrender, um, but if it is, it's not really terms. It, it seems more like a list of demands of what Strathbogie wants um, in return for his surrender um, oh. from Edward the oh. from Edward the Third. <laughs> um, so again, it kind of reinforces that he is a, an exceptionally important and powerful individual that both sides actually want yeah. on side. Um, so, so when he changes sides again in 1335, obviously his wife does likewise. Um, and then he, he uh. continues to try and expand his power in the north until he's uh, uh, forced into confrontation. That's the battle at Culblane in November 1335. And it's in the aftermath of that that, that Countess Catherine's besieged uh, in Loch and Dorb. Um, but I think some of the stuff that's come out uh, or that I've tried to kind of we've tried to kind of tease out in regards to all this is is perhaps trying to get to some of uh, some reconstruction of of those who might have been around Catherine herself, um, and I think mm-hmm. the, the logical step would be some of the 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 wives of some of his closer followers. Um, so there's there's the various sisters that are members of the Mowbray family, who are themselves a disinherited family. Uh, but two of them are married mm-hmm. to, to retainers of um, of Strathbogie, uh, so An- Anselm de Guin uh, and uh, Robert uh, Gower. Um, and I, mm-hmm. I do wonder if you know they are within the Count, uh, Countess Catherine's um, kind of household or, or, or you know, circle of friends. Um but but that mm-hmm. that might be you know more extensive. Um, there are all manner of possibilities, uh, and and that may change as well as as her and her husband's loyalties officially at least change throughout this period. You know, yeah. Do you then see them making links with others. Um, yeah, I, I think a lot of it is quite speculative. <laughs> I think it has to be um, because there isn't there isn't right. necessarily enough yeah. written evidence to to allow the type of, of of study you might like to do, but it doesn't mean you can't try and piece together various bits of evidence that might point in one direction or another, or at least I hope so. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, I was I was kind of wondering if at any point she and her husband sort of didn't agree on which <laughs> side. <laughs> they well, were yeah, I mean, um, it's, it's, yeah, that's not clear um, at all, to be honest, although I, I suppose... Perhaps if, if they hadn't, then then yes, her um, the departure of her family at the end of thirteen thirty four might have been her opportunity to leave um, when when right. they because I think uh, chronicles evidence suggests that they leave Dundalk, which is up in the the Buchan coast, uh, and they they go to Dundee and they take ship from Dundee and sail back to England. So I mean that might have been her chance to leave if she'd been at odds 
with her with her husband. Right. And there is actually an example, and now typically I can't remember the name of the lady involved. Uh, uh, sorry, yes, it's, it's Isabella, Countess of Mar. So Countess Isabella uh-huh. was was um, married to Donald of Mar, who's killed at Duplin Moor. And in the aftermath of that, she seems to come into the hands of, of Edward Balliol, who marries her off to one of the Mowbrays. Uh, I think it's uh, Geoffrey Mowbray. Um, Mowbray, though, surrenders to the Bruce Scots in 1334, and Countess Isabella flees Scotland for England. Um and right. then receives a pension from Edward the Third, and lands from Edward the Third because her her husband is is seen as a rebel because he surrendered to the Scots, but she has not. Um, and then she divorces Mowbray while in England and marries an Englishman. So <laughs> her, her her case is spectacular, uh, and, and does yeah does suggest. Well, I think I think it, it suggests that her marriage to Mowbray was was a political one, and she takes the first opportunity to get rid of him. Um, but but, but right. it also suggests she has pro English or pro Balliol leanings herself, um, and and that that's very much to the forefront of her thinking in her actions. So yeah, that's that's a useful comparison. And I think the fact that, that Catherine doesn't do that um, perhaps demonstrates that she's she's you know comfortable enough with her with her husband's changing of sides uh, if it keeps her and her her yeah. and her son safe. Yeah, that sounds. Um... Yeah, it sounds like she had plenty of opportunity if she had wanted hmm. to <laughs> to leave, then she could have. Um, so, yeah, that's interesting. Have you been able to come to any conclusions yet about looking into motherhood and her experience there? Uh, not, yeah, again, it's it's the lack of evidence means that it's, it's difficult. Uh, although I think the fact that, you know the the investigation has suggested a, a a different date than the one that's usually accepted for her son's birth. It's usually suggested that he's born in thirteen thirty two, but the Inquisition's post mortem for David Strathbogie uh, would seem to suggest that he was born. The son was born in thirty four, um, so that does suggest a birth in Scotland. Right. Um, and so yeah, there's there's things we've tried to suggest in terms of you know where might she have chosen to try and give birth you know where's safe um for a start uh politically um but also where might she have access to uh religious intercession where might she have access to the types of um pious support she might be looking for um so i think there may be a connection between her and the cult of saint mary the virgin um I think there's a possibility okay. of her being, uh, being uh, buried in a church dedicated to St. Mary uh, in England uh, when she dies in 1368. Um, so, you know, there the may then have been, if, if you look at Strathbogie's territories, then she might have, have made use of Dunkeld um, or somewhere further right. north. There's, there's actually a, a various links to the cult of St. Mary in Inverness. Um, so oh, okay. you know there are, there are possibilities there in terms of where she may have sought that kind of religious aid um, for a pregnancy because the, the normal in inverted commas um, cults that, that that might also have been linked to that they don't really have a presence I don't think in that particular region of Scotland so I think those examples uh-huh. are, are are possible um, but but also yeah. I think it links into that that you know circle of women around her because obviously. Uh, that that's a key element of both the mm-hmm. the, the the 
the pre-birth uh, rituals, the birth itself, obviously, which is very much the, the female domain, uh, and then the the, the various uh, ceremonies that, that follow uh, pregnancy and uh, leading up to and including baptism uh, are also quite female dominated. Uh, so she she would have needed mm-hmm. to have that circle of, of friends or supporters round about her. And so that then begs the question of well, who might those women have been and and how many of them are still are still there or thereabouts. Because one of the one of the examples I used, um I'm sorry, I can't remember her name, but the the, the Mowbray wife of Anselm de Guin goes uh, goes south with him in 1334. Mm-hmm. He's captured with Strathbogie in 1334 uh, when Strathbogie surrenders to the Bruce Scots in that year, uh, and and he goes south. But it, it's uh, uh, record evidence shows that he took his wife with him. Um, so that might have been that might have been uh-huh. one of our circle that she lost uh, in that year as a result of of Strathbogie changing sides, but. But she might well have been part of her circle during the during the pregnancy and and and, and did the birth. But it's all it's all quite yeah. speculative because there's just there's not necessarily yeah. enough there to really be able to say for definite, uh, you know, what what certain things are. Right. Do we know any uh, the kind of details specifics of what these like pre-birth and post-birth rituals would have? been or yeah i mean i think well i think there's a lot of preparation um of the site um so that the birthing chamber of the rooms um that, that she will uh retire to um which is i think about a month beforehand and so there's 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 mm-hmm. meant comparative uh, research uh, would suggest there's a lot of uh, purchasing of cloth and and uh, various materials to to essentially insulate um, the, the space uh, to keep the heat in to to make right. sure that she's comfortable. Um, and there is there is actually part of the the research we've done as well. We've, we've, we've speculated that there might have been a younger, there might have been a child born earlier to the two of them, perhaps in thirteen thirty thirty one, uh, that was either lost uh-huh. or, or 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 a female child that we've, we've lost track of um just because strathbogie right. is is buying or is has various debts to various english um cloth suppliers um so he hmm. he may have been i mean it may, it may not be he may just have been you know seeking money uh, but it may also be that he was right. he was purchasing cloth and and that is that is directly related to the to to to, to birth um and then so yeah she she locks mm-hmm. herself away effectively with with her coterie of women about a month beforehand uh, and then after the birth itself uh, she she remains um not in seclusion but she remains inside for about a month afterwards uh, although there is the the ceremony of of the, the kind of cucking ritual the churching ritual, uh, where she goes to the the the, right. the, the doorway of the church, um, uh, and then there's the the baptism itself. So the, there's a lot, there's a lot related to it, um, and again, it it, it mm-hmm. suggests or it perhaps speaks to a feeling of safety and security. You know, you have to assume that this this wouldn't necessarily be happening if it's in the midst of a war torn landscape. Oh, well, of course it could, but but right. but. You have to assume, or you have to think that they, they do feel safe enough or secure enough to allow this to play out in a, you know, a vaguely remote part of northern Scotland where there isn't necessarily disinherited support roundabout. Um, I think all that speaks to the realities of the time, and again, it's not necessarily the realities we would assume to be the case 
um, beforehand. Right. Yeah, of course, they might, you know, not have a choice. Oh, yeah, but there, there is that as well. Yeah. Had, but yeah, it's, uh, yeah, you'd think that they would at least choose the place that they were most safe and secure to, to have that. Yeah, and, and that, that gave us a bit of fun just trying to, to work out where, where that might have been um, across the, the extent of, yeah. of Strathbogie's territories. You know, where are the types of, of places that might have been secure or might have been... I mean, and Lock and Dorb is potentially one of them. The joy of Lock and Dorb is, is it's an island castle. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, you know, it, I don't think you can get much safer uh, than yeah. that. Although it might not necessarily have been as, as defensible as all that. Um, it might have been more of a, a hunting lodge stroke um, manner than a than a... a fully defensible castle but the fact it's on an island i think helps um but there's various other locations that might have been um, yeah like like um uh, uh rate um in athel might have been one possible location mm-hmm. or um uh, blair uh, blair castle might have been as well you know i think there are they're all manner of, of possibilities um we don't we won't know or i don't think we can know yeah. but um uh, but again it's, it's quite fun to <laughs> to discuss the options right. Yeah, yeah. Can we uh, go back more to the details of the actual siege mm. um, that you're looking at? And like, <laughs> why is it under siege? Why is it um, that particular location? Um, and and what was going on there? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it is one of these slightly... If you look at it on a map, it just looks very random because it's it's deep in it's yeah. deep in in northern Scotland, and it was again, it's not necessarily if you don't know fully about the conflict, not necessarily where you would expect. You know, forces yeah. not loyal to David the Second might be, but um, but yeah, it is it is well within Strathbogie's kind of heartland, um, and, and in the wake mm-hmm. of Kilblain and the wake of Strathbogie's death, that that is the opportunity for the Bruce forces under the likes of Andrew Murray of Bothwell, who is himself a northern lord, he has lands in the Black Isle. Um, this is their chance, mm-hmm. I think, to start to roll back some of that, what would appear to be, anyway, to be quite strong support in some areas for Strathbogie and for him, even if not necessarily for Balliol. And this is where it gets perhaps even more complicated, that the Strathbogie is able potentially to tap into that reservoir of pre-existing support for the commons you know this is a region that that, mm-hmm. that bruce didn't ever necessarily manage to convert to his kingship or, or else they got on with it but they didn't necessarily like it and the opportunity to to go back to Correct. their previous allegiance even with this man who is not a common himself but can claim that lineage through his uh, through his mother as indeed his wife can interestingly uh, through her mother um you know that that yeah. gives an opportunity for a, a common return, um, and I think I think the Bruce Scots have to have to work quite hard to 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 win this region back, and, and the region is is quite a large chunk of of the north and northeast. Um, so I think Lockendorp right. then stands as a as a rather obvious symbol of 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 that kind of allegiance that's not to not to the Bruce Scots, not to David the Second. And so they, they, they lay siege to Lock and Dorb. Um, they may not lay siege to it straight away. Again, the assumption is the, the Scots go from, the Bruce Scots go from Culblane to Lock and Dorb. Um, 
but but mm-hmm. evidence from Countess Catherine herself suggests that she only arrives at Loch Endorb on the 30th of November, and that's the day of Kilblain itself. Um, right. So, and then I think the Bruce Scots, there's, there's charter evidence to suggest they're still wandering around Mar and Strathbogie itself in the northeast um, about a week after the battle. So I think, you know, that you could suggest there is there is a campaign going on to to reclaim that territory, to reconquer it, or to, to right. you know, beat down on, on, on the remnants of of Strathbogie support before they <laughs> then go on to, to besiege Loch and Dorb. And then Ebbett the Third gets involved. Yeah. Um, there have been ongoing negotiations between the Briscots and Ebbett the Third for, for months um, about the possibility of a truce or indeed peace. Um, and the negotiations towards the end of January 36 uh, are the first time that a truce is, is negotiated to, to last until the following May. And for the first time, those negotiations specifically mm-hmm. make reference to Lock and Dorb. Um, so it's been it's been besieged before the end of January, anyway. Uh, but it then gets included in a in a more general truce um, that that specifically says that all action at Lock and Dorb is to stop. Um, so that would that would appear to then put that put the siege in abeyance at least until May. Um, although, as as I said, yeah. I, you know, comparative evidence I, again, the evidence isn't what we would like it to be uh, but comparative evidence from ireland suggests that that winter is particularly bad um there's a lot of snow um uh-huh. and if if the weather in the scottish northwest is even remotely similar it's hard to see whether a siege could have taken place <laughs> anyway <laughs> because it's it's a long winter right there's a lot of snow um <laughs> and and I actually might explain then why Catherine herself remains because with the truce being in place from the end of January you might think that she might take the opportunity to leave um, but that, right. if the weather is that bad she may not have been able to um, in which case it's, right. it's, it then lasts until the Bruce Scots are able to return. They would probably return in advance of the truce expiring uh, which as I said I think is the beginning of May and then thereafter she's, she's stuck there while the Bruce Scots then properly try and, and capture that that last remaining castle in the north um and she mm. stays there until i said it's uh, kind of mid-july by the time ever the third gets there to to relieve uh, and that's that's the bit of the siege actually we know the most about because between the english newsletter right. and the account of andrew winton um who has a lot of knowledge of northern events um gives a, a rather mm-hmm. lengthy description of what happens with with Andrew Murray laying siege to the place and then Edward the Third coming and, and rescuing it. Yeah. And you said she's there with her child who's only maybe two at this point? Yeah, so I think about that, yeah. If if what we've suggested about his yeah. birth is right, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, that could definitely play into um, wanting to move around as well. I mean, two-year-olds are characteristically easy to you know, travel long distances yeah. with. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that's, that's a point. Actually, I, I don't. I don't suppose I'd actually even considered that to be honest. Which is perhaps saying more about me than anything else. But, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I, we don't actually tend to see a lot of um, people taking into account um, moving around, like nobility moving with their children or mm. whatever, um, unless there's like indication of illness um with either the mother or the child um and a concern for their frailty yeah. but in general like um it 
yeah, I, I can't imagine traveling with a toddler <laughs> in the middle of winter. <laughs> no, no, I, I should, I should, and on I, horse. I should put that in somewhere, shouldn't I? <laughs> no, it's a, it's a good point. Yeah, like it, it, yeah, it's a good, um, a, a good additional reason as to why she might not. Have. Why she might not have departed. The, the, I said yeah. there's only one Scottish source makes reference to it, and that's John of Forden. And of course, he's using earlier materials, or it's earlier materials essentially that are his work. Um, and it's just mm-hmm. a passing reference. Um, but I think it's it probably is yeah. right that, that he was the young David Strathbogie is there. Uh, but yes, his his young age may yeah. have made mobility quite difficult. Yeah, I mean, and it, you know, maybe it was that he was. That they didn't want to risk any sort of mm. illness. Um, maybe he was just particularly rambunctious <laughs> for a child. Like, <laughs> um, but yeah, there's there's definitely a, a certain amount of safety, and especially if he was if he was sort of her only surviving child, or certainly the heir. Um, then particular care to his, his safety might be being taken into account. Yeah, uh, no, absolutely. And I think in particular after the death of her husband, um, yeah, I think protection then of the heir is surely paramount. Um, So, yeah, I don't suppose she'll be taking any risks. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this has been super interesting. I have really enjoyed (laughs) talking to you about all of this. Um, I have many more questions, but I'm going to stop asking them. (laughs) (laughs) But thank you very much for joining me. Oh, today. thank you very much. And uh, yeah, no, it's always nice to talk about my period. I always feel, whether it's right or not, I always feel that it's under, underrepresented, underserved, under uh, misunderstood. Um, and so, any any chance to get to talk about it is always is always uh, welcome. Scotta Chronicast is just one of many things relating to medieval history on medievalists.net. If you like what you see and what you hear, consider being a patron on patreon.com slash medievalists. Thank you for joining us on the Scotta Chronicast. Please rate and review wherever you get your podcasts, and be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. You can also follow our account on Twitter, at Scotta Chronicast. Our music is Ex to Lux Oratur by Gaeta. Thanks for listening.